You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Brooke Berman. Brooke is a playwright whose work includes plays, screenplays, a memoir. She's also a filmmaker and a teacher. And I'm just thrilled to have her on the podcast. I've admired her work for a very long time. And we didn't overlap at Juilliard, but she's a graduate of their playwriting program. And we connected earlier this year through the Alumni Network. I really appreciate her candor and generosity in this conversation. And I hope you enjoy the 119th episode of The Compass. first question that I always start with yeah is how do you try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist yeah I you sent me that question and it's a great question (laughs) because I don't think you can I mean I don't think it's possible so I'm an artist I'm a playwright filmmaker prose writer Mm -hmm. Um, I started out as an actor and my husband's a novelist right so I'm in a two artist family And I'm going to tell you on any given day, either one of us can go to the dark side and sometimes bring the other one right there with them. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think, I don't think it's possible to not go there. It's a little bit like, you know, I don't know about you. I have crazy sugar cravings. If I say to myself, like, you're not going to have chocolate today, it's just not going to happen. I want chocolate. I think about it all day long. (laughs) But if I say to myself, you're going to have some green juice today, um, and I don't even think about the chocolate, I go get the green juice. I mean, it's a terrible analogy, but <laughs> you know, it's the same thing with my kid. If I say to my kid, no, you can't do that one thing, that one thing becomes really the sexy. Yeah. So I think the energy that we spend trying to not go to the dark side is actually creative energy that we could spend in other directions. So what I try to do is sort of uh, imagine that the dark side is one of the many places I might go on any given day. Uh Um, And I need to make friends with that. And I need to make a kind of like cast a bigger circle around that dark side so that there are lots of other places to go to. And then I can know, I mean, for me, the triggers are um, when I think it's too much about the past. Hmm. If I find myself really thinking about something that did or didn't happen 10 years ago, I know to sort of pull myself out of that and and get back into what I'm creating right now. Yeah. But I don't know that it's possible to not go at all. We have dark thoughts. We do. We have fear. Fear exists. Um, that was the thing when I was in college and I was studying Buddhism. I remember that the um, sort of major summation of Buddhism is that the Buddha came along and said, hey guys, suffering exists. Because prior to that, the idea in Vedic tradition was that suffering is an illusion. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist. It's an illusion. What The only thing that exists is the light. And Buddha said, no, actually, this thing called suffering is real. It exists. <laughs> so here's some things you can do when you're in it. And that's you know where, where the meditation practice came in. In college, I thought that was a real bummer. And I, it made me deeply disinterested in Buddhism. But as an adult, it's like a saving grace. Because the dark side <laughs> exists. The fear exists. The insecurity exists. The regret exists. The um, pre- unhealthy preoccupations exist. Competition exists. Um, angst about one's career exists. But 
I think what I try to do is pay attention to when those things start cropping up and then see if I can pull myself back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so not necessarily trying not to go there, but yeah, what are the things that you do to not stay there as long or to bring yourself back? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is I notice I'm there. Oh, look at what you're thinking about today. This happened again. Yeah, I say it to my son all the time. So is that a good choice or a bad choice? (laughs) (laughs) I know you want to make fart jokes right now, but do you think that's a good choice? (laughs) Or do you think maybe you could make a better choice? So it's a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. Um... I had an agent once who said, and this was in LA, that people in the business were so interested in um, spiritual tradition and yoga and meditation and magic because we spend so much time unemployed and because our industry is so unpredictable that we need something to kind of make sense of the world for us Yeah, because we live in this world that seemingly makes no sense. Um, So I, you know, I do all that stuff too. I love a good meditation practice. I love a good yoga class. Um, but you know, exercise, doing something with my body. Mm -hmm. Um, back in the day, Yvonne Woods and I used to go dancing all the time, but just like having a physical outlet helps the neurotic energy get out. Um, my friendships are really important to me. Um, the major, 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 major thing though, is the act of creation it sounds super cheesy, but I'm no. always happier when I'm writing and I'm always happier when I'm making things with people. So like, as opposed to my husband, who's a novelist who can sort of, he's a fiction and nonfiction writer. He can um, sit alone in our apartment writing for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and just go into the zone by himself and, and emerge happy. happy. I need people. I'm not like that. I, yeah. I work more quickly and I can't wait to bring it to the people. <laughs> So like, I like a table read. I like a little work session in a studio. I like having a project that I can meet with, you know, I can, um, include other people in and sort of meet on. Um, I love that. Yeah. And I, I mean, think it's, it's, it's so obvious because theater is a collaborative thing, but indeed. as a playwright, you picture a lot of time alone and well, I love writing. I mean, I do love writing. So I'm one of the writers that likes to write. So, right. But you don't forget about the end goal of having other people's voices interpret what you're writing. Yeah, their voices and their bodies. I mean, for me, the end goal is taking the imaginary world I've created and taking the words and putting them on other people's bodies and then letting them live in a physical space. That's why I started making films. Like, that's just really exciting to me. Because otherwise, it's just words on a page. Yeah. So I try and um, I just keep making things. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm only pausing because there's yeah. so many things I want to ask you and I'm trying to decide Please. where to go first. Um, when did you branch out from... No, Please. no. We're going to go back to the beginning because there's okay. too many things. Um, so you started out as a performer originally. I did. In um, college, I assume? I was a kid actor. Okay. I couldn't wait to get to New York. I couldn't wait to be a famous movie star. Did I see in my internet stalking that you're from Michigan as well? Oh, you're from Michigan. Yes. Where are you from? Clarkston. Oh. In between Flint and Pontiac. 
Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm from the suburbs of Detroit. Okay. Um, my mom is a proud Detroiter. My grandma was a proud Detroiter. Um, we're Eastern European immigrants, Jews, and we came. My family didn't go to New York like everybody else. My family came directly to the Midwest. So as long as my family's been in America, they've been in Detroit. Wow. And then when I was 10 and a half, my mom remarried, and we moved to Libertyville, Illinois, which is equidistant between... Between Chicago and Milwaukee. Yeah, I've been there. We, I had a college friend really? who grew up there. Yeah, funny. It's so <laughs> random. Yeah. Um, Beth Blickers is from there as well. I w- I wonder. Like I have I have a number of theater friends who yeah like oh. all went through some great drama program at a local high school. That wasn't me. So the so then we moved from Libertyville to Northbrook, okay. which is where John Hughes is from. So all the John Hughes films were made about my high school. Ali Sheedy and Judd Nelson and Emilio <laughs> Estevez and Anthony Michael Hall came to my high school. Oh my god! I think Molly Ringwald stayed home in the trailer. I'm not sure, but the other four all came to my high school to observe us before shooting <laughs> Breakfast Club. <laughs> And um, they shot many parts of Ferris Bueller around my high school. We were all like super identified with that That's moment crazy. in time. Yeah. Did you ever go back and watch those movies? No. Oh, <laughs> the movies, maybe. No, I haven't in a long time, but I, I should. I have a real fondness for them. That would be so interesting. And then my the high school theater mentor was um, Joyce Piven, okay. mother of... Jeremy and Shira Piven. All right. So I did this awesome high school theater program. It's the same one Sarah Rule came out of. Okay. And like a whole bunch of other Chicago, Lily Taylor, mm-hmm. the Cusacks, they all came through this That's Piven fantastic. theater workshop. Well, here's what's fantastic about it. Joyce and Vern Piven um, came through uh, story theater with Mike Nichols. They were all they were all contemporaries with Paul Sills, who is the son of Viola Spolin. Okay. So Viola Spolin taught theater games to immigrants in Chicago at Hull House. She came up with a way of using theater to help sort of um, enculturate and educate, like support immigrant kids in Chicago. And then Paul Sills, who went to University of Chicago, started this like story theater thing that came from his mother's because his mother's idea was to teach acting through playing games. Mm-hmm. So it's all game based. And then um, that became the root of like a whole bunch of contemporary movements like Second City all came out of this story theater. And so we would do um, we would like play tag yeah. and we would play. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so fun. It was fun. It was amazing. <laughs> and it was it laid great oh, foundation with me because then I went and studied with Anne Bogart. And Anne Bogart's oh, work yeah. in um, The Viewpoints was similar to Viola Spolin's work because a lot of it was about bypassing adult psychology. So you're meant to just be play these games, right? Which engage the body and engage your sort of impulse network and the intuition, and it makes theater playful and immediate and fun and non-intellectual and Anne's work which is highly intellectual um is but is also in a lot of ways about using gesture and repetition and the body and kinesthetic response Mm -hmm. and so it had a I found as a performer they were beautifully connected and then I started writing out of that no, and it just makes so much sense the way you worded a moment ago, saying you can't wait to get your words like in people's bodies. And well, see that's what where the theater part yeah. is, right? So, when did you first uh, start writing? Then, what was that transition? 
Um, I was writing for myself as an actor. Okay. So I had always written, I was, you know, like I wrote poetry in high school. <laughs> I was like the misunderstood artsy girl with the Joni Mitchell albums in the, poem, in the journal. Um, I wrote obsessive love letters and poems and, you know, stories kind of. Um, but it wasn't until I got to college and I... I didn't really like the material that was available for me as a young actress. I felt like I didn't fit into any of the girl roles, um, not because I was looking at the boy roles, but because I wanted to do something else. And, um, and so I started performing a short story I'd written around Columbia coffee houses. I was a student at Barnard. And I and Columbia had these lovely like literary coffee houses. So I took this story that I wrote and just started performing it to see what would happen. I had seen Sandra Bernhardt that year mm-hmm. and she blew my mind. And I had seen this piece at the Goodman Theater that Spalding Gray had written, but an actor performed. And again, the experience of having a performer play themselves make direct eye contact with me and break the fourth wall just blew my mind. It felt so immediate and vital and interesting and it engaged me as an audience member and I wanted to do that. So I started doing that and then I dropped out of college to go work with Anne and Anne had just taken over Trinity Rep Theater and I um, again auditioned for and I auditioned using my own material and then I auditioned for a coffee house at Trinity Rep Theater, like a post-show cabaret, using a piece I had written, and it got this like immediate response, and Anne said, oh, you're a solo performer, that's what you're going to do. So I wanted to be an actress, <laughs> but I also loved the world of solo performance, and I loved um, being able to write for myself. It just felt intuitively right. So uh, then Anne got fired from Trinity Rep and my friends and I all packed up and moved back to New York and I decided I didn't want to go back to college that I did want to pursue acting full-time and I had done some equity plays that year at Trinity and I felt like I was just ready to throw myself in um so I did this solo performance monologuing on the side while I was ostensibly building an acting career And then little by little, the writing just took over. Like I just, yeah, the writing took over. And then when I was 23, I had a short play. I'd written this like eight page play for my friend Megan Spooner and I to perform in in the house I was living in Providence. And I sent it to Naked Angels and they accepted it. And they produced it in an evening of short plays by... um, Wendy Wasserstein and Craig Lucas and John mm-hmm. Robin Bates and um oh my god that must have been so exciting it was terrifying and <laughs> thrilling at the same time I mean a theme of my life seems to be that I get invited into the game and have no idea what my job description is so I'd been a playwright but I'd only worked with one living I mean I'd been an actor but I'd only worked with one living playwright and that was Dara Cloud um so I really had no idea what playwrights did right like what the so then I had to learn what yes <laughs> yes and like Except what for we the do finished products that's right okay. and like what we do in rehearsal and what the yeah. rules are and what do you do when someone wants to change something is that allowed and you know I just didn't really know um so then I had to learn what playwrights did 
And then it was the same thing really with screenwriting because I optioned a film to Natalie Portman when I was fully just immersed in playwriting uh, in 2004. I sold one of my plays and quite naively said, well, I'm going to do the adaptation and you're going to pay me. And quite generously, uh, Natalie Portman said, sure, that sounds great. <laughs> and so she did. And then suddenly I was a screenwriter um, and I would go into these like, meetings in Hollywood. Now. Well, pretty yeah. much. I mean, I really didn't know what screenwriters did either because their training is so different than playwrights training, or at least it used to be. Um, so then I had to learn what that was all about. And then similarly, when I decided to make my own film, um, I really had no idea what filmmakers did. And my friend Amber sat me down and taught me. Yeah, well, and then I, I made was, a film. That's what I was going to ask. Like when you find yourself on yeah. these new precipices, yeah. like do you, are you just an observer? Are you trying to gather all your resources to you? Are you reaching out to like, who's the mentor I can? All of the above. I've done. Question. Yeah, <laughs> all of the above. I mean, I love being an observer. So um, one do you of the tell other people like, are you somebody who you're trying to put up the front to the powers that be that like, sure, I can do that. Or do you say, I don't know how, but I'm going to figure it out a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I'm terrible. I'm not a good liar. So when I don't <laughs> know how to do something, I'm actually quite bad at saying, well, no, I know how to do that. But because I've, um, because I've also gotten in trouble for sort of wearing my, I don't know how to do that. I've Lately, I tend to say, oh, okay. great, I'll figure it out. Right. Um, but it's all of the above. And, and at any moment, any one of those strategies are employed. And, you know, certainly in each of those circumstances, there have been great mentors and great friends and people to watch and learn from. And then at some point, you know, it's like speaking a foreign language. You just have to go to the country and speak. Right. And speak badly for a while. Yeah. Until someone tells you, actually, <laughs> what you just said is... <laughs> means the complete opposite of what yeah. you think I was in Paris once and I, I thought I was, you know, and I'm also not a smoker, but this friend there gave me a, an Indian cigarette, a beady, and I very much wanted to smoke it because I was alone in Paris and doing things I didn't normally do. <laughs> and, uh, and so I asked this man in French if he would um, give me a light. And apparently instead I asked if he would give me a bed. <laughs> what did he say? He said, Mademoiselle, you just asked if I would give you a bed. <laughs> and then he corrected me and gave me a match <laughs> that's wonderful yeah so I think it's a little of everything I think you know there's an observation period there's a um gathering information period there's a reaching out period there's a collect mentors period um I was very lucky in LA my friend Jessica Goldberg had just made her first feature and she came back and said Brookie you have to do this and so she kind of held my hand through it um my friend Amber Benson uh was a producer on my film and at one point when I was feeling really overwhelmed and scared I'm, she, I made a short I said to Amber like maybe you should direct this and she said no, no no you're gonna direct it but I'm gonna walk you through all the steps and so you know she taught me to storyboard and she taught me sort of what we would need and who the crew members would be and um she was extraordinary. And then once I was on the set, I knew how to direct. I've worked with actors right. for 25, 30 years. Right. So like I knew the, the process of making the thing. I just had to learn the other part of making the thing. I love hearing stories like that of when people are really generous with their, with their knowledge and their talents. Yeah, especially I do too. other women. 
I do too. I believe in other women. I don't, you know, I hear this cultural thing where people say that women are bitchy to each other, women are competitive, but I've really never experienced that. The women in my life have generally, I hate it too. The women in my life have always been good to me. I've certainly had fights with female friends, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't come down to bitchiness or competition or um, one-upsmanship. I think, I mean, I think I see where the danger can come in with, I think, a scarcity mentality. Mm. Yeah. And not just women towards women, but any artists. Like, it's just kind of part of the the bad side of the way this business is structured, is they kind of Absolutely. make you feel like there's not enough to go around. You're so lucky to be getting this opportunity. Well, of course. And you um, walk into an audition room, and it's you and, like, 50 girls that look like you. Yeah. You know, I get a theater season, and they produce one white woman a year. Mm-hmm. Sometimes one woman a year total. Yep. <laughs> so we all know each other and we're either going to support each other or we're going to feel shitty for a great percentage right. of our lives. But I feel like so much more comes back to you if you're giving and supportive to other people. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, as opposed to holding back or holding holding invisible grudges from 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, that person got that thing. Right. It's true. So when did you wind up going to Juilliard? Because that's something we have in common. Oh, yeah. I went to for Juilliard. You went, you went uh-huh. I went for writing. I auditioned as an actor when I was dropping out of college. Oh, really? Yeah, and I didn't get in. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what led me to Trinity Rep, because I went down to my internship at Dance Theater Workshop, and my boss said, what did you do this weekend? And I said, I auditioned for Juilliard. And he said, oh, do you want to go to a training program? Because... I'm starting a training program at Trinity Rep. And so that was what led me to Anne. Um, but no, I auditioned for Juilliard. I applied to go to Juilliard. So I had quit the theater. How, I had quit yeah, acting. What happened there? Um, how, I went through a really dark period in my 20s. Mm-hmm. I was about 27. I was 27. And I was reevaluating everything about my life. Uh, I'd gone through some sort of distressing events and I was trying to just, and I, you know, didn't have any money and I was temping and my, uh, the best friend from Chicago who Pam English was her mentor kept Uh saying, it's because you're in New York, get out of New York. And, um, I was just really asking questions and I didn't know where any of the questions would take me. And I like met a hot guy with a van and fell madly in love and drove across country looking for any city besides New York that I could possibly live in. Um, and at the end of a, like four and a half months of travel, came back to New York, really uncertain about my next move, not convinced I was going to stay here, but I had to eat. And I had like $1,200 of debt for my cross-country adventures, all of them through a Sprint phone bill. And so I started um, temping mm-hmm. and decided that maybe it would be a good idea to get my bachelor's degree. That like while I was going through all this stuff and while I was feeling so unshake, uncertain and shaky and um, confused and sad, um, why not? <laughs> Like refill the well. And And that's a specific goal that would take a specific amount of time. Yeah. And one that I was totally capable of and maybe buying myself those two or three years to be in school and get that degree would also give me a 
measure of structure that I very much needed Mm -hmm. instead of at the end of those few years I could reevaluate and see like well now I have these new skills what should I do Um, so I applied to NYU to the Gallatin School Mm -hmm. where I was going to study um, film and women's studies that's when you can design your own major yes you can design your own major Um, and like I said I was 27 I applied, um, I had known Paula Vogel from the year I lived in Providence and I wanted to study with her. So I applied to Brown, but I applied to the graduate playwriting program and without an undergraduate degree, I could not like no how, no way it was immovable. Right. And then I applied to Juilliard and I got into NYU and then I got a call from Chris Durang saying, hi, this is Chris Durang from Juilliard. <laughs> Marsha Norman and I would like to invite you to come to school here. And it was like, oh, <laughs> Juilliard. Um, my mom was a concert pianist, so I had grown up hearing about Juilliard. Yes. My mom had gotten a scholarship to Juilliard and didn't go. I mean, that was the family legend. Right. Yeah. So that was when I went. Yeah. Um, I was 27. And, I mean, the amazing thing about that program is that, mm. I don't, well, I don't know what it was like when you went through it, but the fact that it's funded, right? Yeah, that was an yeah. amazing part of it. <laughs> and it it's was not full time either, so you can do. Mm-mm. You have to go a couple times a week for mm-hmm. a class or a mm-hmm. reading. And... It was perfect for yeah. me because I could keep my temp job a couple days a week, and I babysat, and I had yard sales, and I, you know, ghost wrote for. I did anything I could do, write. but I could I could do that. I could keep my, you know, because at that point I'd been living in New York. I moved to New York when I was 18, so I and I was 28, I think, the year I started. So I was like, I'd been here for 10 years. Like, I could also, I didn't have to move on campus and, like, have a new life. Mm-hmm. I could sort of keep my life. But Marsha was also really clear that you need time to write. So I had to also figure out how to make the writing time. But it was perfect, and I didn't amass debt. Yeah, which is huge. Which is huge. Totally. So, and it changed my life. I mean, it really, I went into Juilliard with this kind of um, vague, like, I am an actor, but I write plays, but I'm experimental, and I want to make films someday. I was a little, like, loosey-goosey, and I came out two years later a playwright. There was a period where Marcia said, like, I want to teach you to make your plays look like plays on the page. And as simple as that sounds, it was quite radical for me because I just didn't know what that meant. Right. And you were coming from somewhere that was much more free form and that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you said you had kind of been at that turning place before you decided to go back to school of like, do I even want to do theater anymore? Yeah. I felt very clearly that I didn't. And then the joke was on me because theater pulled me back. Did you feel like when you got into that program, you're like, Oh, this is what yeah, I'm going to do or when pretty you got much. Out? No, when I got in, I was like, like Oh, this is what it is. This makes a lot of sense to me. This is what I want to do. But it was hard. I mean, I was, um, it was a different time in terms of being a female playwright and content and form. Um, we were going through a much more traditional era in terms of the rules of playmaking. Um, it was the first time I'd been someplace so overtly competitive. Like I really mm-hmm. didn't, I thought we were going to all hold each other's hands and be yummy and supportive and nurturing. And that was not my experience at Juilliard. Yeah. Um, most of the friends I made 
were either actors. I really bonded with the actors or the playwrights that became my close, close friends. We really didn't become friends till after the program was over. Mm. And I think that was unique to my year. It seems like people are throwing like more supportive. I don't know, but it's, you know, it's an incredibly high functioning program. I was also there before all the playwrights were going to television. I'm the last generation of playwright that was overtly told don't write for TV because you'll lose your voice. Hmm. So um, things really shifted in the two or three years after we left. I wonder what shifted, if that was like demand from well, the outside world. Well, a lot of things world, shifted. Or if that was the teacher's perspective or... Well, I mean, the whole world that shifted. That was definitely so, the case when I was there. Yeah, I mean, we stopped having a functional NEA. So if an NEA isn't supporting artists, there are two places where playwrights make their money. They either make it through teaching or through TV. Mm-hmm. And then TV changed. I mean, that's the really extraordinary thing is that after Six Feet Under, when, you know, so many playwrights were employed by Six Feet Under and then stayed in the business and and, and the business started to have a little bit of an epiphany that like, oh, playwrights, right. playwrights, yeah. And they knew other people, and I'm sure we're telling friends. Yes, and... and then the streaming thing happened. I mean, right now there are more outlets than there ever have been, and the rules that were so ironclad. I mean, even when I lived in L.A. 10 years ago and I would take TV generals, I was told quite overtly, um, either you write comedy or you write drama. Either you write half hour or you write hour. I turn in a script and a former um, rep of mine said, um, I just like don't know how to feel about this. Like I can't tell <laughs> if I'm supposed to laugh or not. Like, is it funny? Because it also seems kind of serious. <laughs> and like, I mean. Which now that, would be totally in. Which now would be totally <laughs> in. I remember I was friendly with Jill Soloway when I was living in LA. And I remember showing her one of her my plays. And she looked at it and said, I don't even know what this is on the page. Like, what is this? <laughs> But now sure. I feel like, especially if you look at what Jill is creating, That's so it doesn't have to look like that on a page. Right. And then you have all of these extraordinary voices that are also, I was also told um, when I first moved to LA that my work was too personal and maybe I should consider writing stories ripped from the headlines. But then you look at something like Issa Rae, I mean, her mm-hmm. work is personal, but that's the point. Yeah. So you, you've really seen that progression. It's amazing. It's so inspiring. It's so inspiring. Because Irene Fornes, who was one of my mentors, Irene Fornes used to say about theater, um, all the rules that people tell you are made up. Somebody made them up. It's true. Aristotle it's made so up true. the poetics. But at some point, along yes. the, we all go through a period where we really believe that you have to follow them. Yes. Now, it's interesting because I will tell you there were rules I wanted to break as a writer in my 20s and early 30s that I would, you know, cite Irene and say, well, Irene Fournette says, <laughs> right? Like I had to play Sometimes at Steppenwolf. Sometimes you need permission. You need someone's Sometimes permission. Sometimes you need permission. And Irene is an extraordinary permission giver. I mean, she was the best teacher, hands down, I've ever had in any medium. Where did you work with her? I worked teacher? with her. First in Mexico and then in New York. Briefly, I mean, not for that long. I took a workshop with her um, in Tosco, Mexico, and then I took a workshop with her at the Women's Project that I assisted her on, and then she just was in my life. Um, And I assisted her on her play Letters from Cuba, the signature. But I had a play at Steppenwolf in Chicago in 2002, and the night before our, the night, right as we were, we had just run out of equity hours, I think 
we were in our second week of previews, maybe like 48 hours out from opening, and Anna Shapiro, who directed the play, mm-hmm. came and got me in the bar afterwards. I was having a drink with Lisa Portes, and Anna came rushing into the bar, and she said, we're in trouble. The play doesn't have a climax. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't have a climax? Like, what are you talking about? And, you know, apparently Anna's mentor had come to the theater that night and said the play lacks a climax. We don't, there's, there, we don't have an identifiable moment where um, the stakes are high enough and then change to lead us to that ending. So, again, we don't know how to feel about it. Right. Now, to me, in 2002, I didn't really give a fuck. I thought who cares so I have a play that doesn't have a climax that's just the way my play is made um you've gotten this far they already agreed to produce it (laughs) it had had a workshop at the O'Neill it had had this workshop at step two workshops at Steppenwolf like as far as I was concerned we were good they knew what they were getting into but it was interesting right because Anna said no 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 we have to keep working and she was right and she we we got we the theater bought a couple extra equity hours And we went into the rehearsal room the next day and we looked for what this elusive thing called a climax might be. Anna and I could both point to the exact moment and it was the same moment. I said, I think it happens here. And she said, I also think it happens here. So we knew exactly the moment, but we couldn't figure out what it was. And we were both, I think, hampered by the idea that it's supposed to be explosive. So Anna said, well, maybe it's not an explosion. Maybe it's an implosion. But whatever it is, it's something. And I really um, struggled because I didn't know, I didn't know if the thing that we thought had to happen really had to happen or or had to happen because that's what the rules say. And I, I gave her, I wrote, we went back and forth and back and forth figuring out what that moment should be. Mm-hmm. And I gave her like an extra two lines and we felt like maybe that satisfied it. Two months later, I had a reading of the same play at a theater in New York. And uh, after the reading was over, in front of all the actors and my former agent, um, the comment was made, this is in my book, he said, I feel like we were fucking and I didn't come. <laughs> so of course that's an, an inappropriate, an no, this no, like this was an artistic director. Oh and obviously that's an inappropriate comment. Um, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so if we strip away the me too-ness of it, the mm-hmm. inappropriate comment, um, because my response was I did. Because <laughs> um, how else do you respond to that comment except to make a joke out of it? Right. Um, but what he was talking about that was actually correct is that there was no climax to the play. There wasn't a conventional climax to the play. So then, I'm 10 years later, less than 10 years later, I'm living in Los Angeles and I'm writing films and, and the feedback I'm getting on all my pitches is, so we just feel like we need a bigger moment at the end of the second act that helps us understand why exactly we're moving into the third act. So what that means is your pitch is lacking a climax. Uh right it's the same piece of feedback coming through these different mouthpieces in different ways and so then I became maniacal about learning conventional structure and learning what the hell they were talking about and whether or not it was important (laughs) and I now believe it is important I don't believe it has to look like 
people's, you know, it doesn't have to look like people screaming and hitting and you know what I mean? But something does have to happen. So I guess all of that is my way of going back to like, some of the rules are there because they're really good rules. (laughs) Some of the rules are arbitrary. And certainly when people say things like three act structures in our DNA, it's not true. If you slice open my DNA, you're not going to find three act structure. (laughs) And certainly if you become a, a, um, a scholar, uh, like a, uh, like a appreciator of theater across the world in other cultures that does three act structures immaterial, but there are certain things stories do. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I so that's one of my obsessions right now. I love that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Some of those like structural things or artistic things you learn that, oh, this is a tool that I find really useful. But yeah. then some of the rules that are imposed by the business that later you find out are just fad. They're fad. That well, was what was in then. Correct. And like, now the stuff that you wrote those years ago is exactly what people are producing on TV, like you yeah. mentioned with Issa and stuff. I mean, and it's so frustrating to me that can send me into the dark side for like right. hours. No, that can I'm be sure. days. Like, that can that. be days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because I was also from the generation of female playwright that was told there's no place for you in this world. Right. We were all told. Or if you follow the rules, maybe we'll let you play. If you have a male protagonist, maybe we'll let you play. Mm-hmm. That was a big thing back when we were starting out. Um, it was explained to me by the associate artistic director of a major regional theater that, um, plays by women didn't make money, that we were a special interest group. And in order to uh, defend putting my, and this was a woman who told me this, defend putting my work in their theater, she would have to prove to her boss, who was a white man, um, that I would be able to sell a certain number of tickets to fill their smaller space, not their bigger space, and that plays with young women at the center just didn't do that. You know, and then bang, Lena Dunham not true none of it's true because lena dunham made money so like plays about young women can make money (laughs) women are not a special interest group over half of the population indeed and and frankly you know we were all we grew up being told that story that women could identify with stories about boys and boys could not identify with stories about girls and now everyone's talking about that but to talk about that in the 90s i still think that's assumed about the vast majority of stories but indeed and it's assumed about race too it's assumed about race as well that white people can't identify with black protagonists but But everyone else can relate to them well everyone's supposed to relate to white protagonists because isn't that the universal human experience right but it's not and the idea that it's not is also not new identity politics were not born in 2016 we were talking about these things in the 90s we were just talking about them in rarefied circles yeah do you know what i mean yeah yeah um and people thought we were crazy <laughs> well, what are you working on these days that you find really exciting is there a, a medium that you're really excited about these days more film more plays well I know you wrote a memoir I did I'm dying to get into a writer's room so I'm writing a lot of tv right now with the goal of finding my way into a room because as we were saying earlier I like the collaborative nature social and I've been on my own a lot in the last few years so I'm really I think it's time I do think it's time. And like I said, television's changed to this place where, you know, I didn't watch TV before 2010, and now I watch TV all the time. So, Well, and there's so many shows being made in New York. Yes. 
But what, so you lived in LA for a while. I lived in LA for five years. Five years. Mm -hmm. I was bi-coastal for one of them. And then my husband, um, said, I can't live in two cities, Berkey. We have to choose one. And he also said this really lovely thing. Um, he was, he was not a happy camper about moving to LA, but he said, we're too young. We're too, we're still, what did he say? He said, we're too old to go back and forth, but we're still too young to be afraid of something because it's new. So he really helped that move happen. Um, and then when I wanted to move back to New York, he was devastated because he really took to LA. To like oh it. my God. <laughs> I said to him the other day, you complained about LA every single day we lived there. And then suddenly like you love it and you miss it and it's your favorite place. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, that's what I do. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so I'm working on that and then I'm, I'm raising money to make my first feature film. Ooh. I adapted my play out of the water, uh, into a film called Polly Freed. And this has been like, it's a huge passion project. I have producers. I have this great executive producer who just That's came exciting. on board, but we have been like putting together a package to raise money which is an extraordinary process. I kind of recommend it. To, like, yeah. What What are you learning about how how you do that? Is that are the um, producers teaching you? Or? I'm learning that it's quite impossible. I'm learning that that most independent film gets made because someone has a rich dad, a rich uncle, a, a rich husband, a benefactor. Yeah, like there's some way they get the money personally. Um, or there's a pedigree involved, and so the industry is more interested in producing them because they right. they're already vetted. And I'm not I'm completely outside of all of that, which is fine. Um, but it's a little bit like playing a video game. Like you just I feel like every uh, every move we're just trying to get to the next move. So, and that's been amazing. Like little level ups. Little level ups, and then mm. the money comes. And I mean, our budget's small; it's under a million dollars. So I think it's doable. I'd like to be shooting it a year from now. Would you direct it as well? Uh, I'm going to direct it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's why I'm raising this so money because I'm going to direct it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I made that short, and I had a blast doing it, and it went to festivals, and then I got the bug. It's interesting because that can reach so many more people than a play. You know if. Yeah. Just in that medium, yeah, it has the potential of you know so many people and so many different physical locations. It's been exciting. It. I'm really enjoying the process, and I'm you know I'm learning so much, and that's been great. And then I have plays. I have like a couple plays I'm working on, so I'm busy. Can I ask a little bit since yeah Frankie and I are about to have our first kid? Can so I, great. <laughs> um, can I ask a little bit about how you and your husband have? handled being parents as artists and how you've structured that to support each other and how it's affected you as a woman 
Yeah. Because your son is... He's seven. Seven, okay. He's going to be seven and a half in a I couple weeks. My, I don't know why in my head I gave him a couple extra years, but oh. <laughs> I was like, is he 10? No, he's seven. No, he's seven. Um, Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. I'm not sure where to start. Do you want to... Um, help me out. What do you want? Was it a decision that you guys kind of made in the moment or was it something that you took a long time to finally decide now's the time we're going to have a kid? So I didn't know I wanted a kid for a really long time. I was an only child with a single mother and then I was a playwright and I really, for most of my twenties and thirties wanted nothing more than to be an artist like to have the opportunity to be one of the people that can really make things and and participate in the larger conversation of culture making that was what I wanted I wanted that more than I wanted anything else and not in a like gross careerist way but really in a self-fulfillment way I've always known that I wanted to do this work and being able to do it and participate in that circle of people that get to do it for their full-time job felt just so extraordinary and so satisfying. And I knew instinctively that having a child would take me away from that in ways I didn't understand. And I wanted to be a guy and just not think about it. I wanted to like live my life and do my work. And if the other, yeah, but, and then, yeah. (laughs) And then, um, when I was 38, my mom died Mm -hmm. and a lot of things in my life changed very, very, very quickly. And I met my husband a couple months later when my mom died, I went to Detroit to, um, be with my grandma and we were cleaning out my mom's apartment and my grandma turned to me and said, you're going to get married and have a child. At that point, I was 39 because I just had my 39th birthday. Grandma. And I said, um, I said, I'm 39. Don't hold your breath. And, <laughs> and then, um, and I will also say that on my 38th birthday, is that true? 38 or 30? One of my birthdays in my late 30s, either 37 or 38, I got, I kind of wigged out a little bit. And I called Marcia Norman and I asked if I could come see her because Um, at whatever age that was, I don't remember now if it was, I think it might've been 36 actually. It was the age at which my mom's health started to tank. My mom made some really bad decisions. She was in a marriage that wasn't particularly, um, kind or supportive. And then while she was in that marriage, she developed kidney disease. She'd been a diabetic my whole life and then she Mm -hmm. developed kidney disease and she had, went on dialysis, she had a transplant, um, then a couple years later, she had another transplant, and she really struggled. Um, and so I have all these memories of this strong, beautiful, vibrant, working mother up until about 36, 37, and then all the memories are, are her, like, unhappy. Right. So I went to see Marsha, and I said, I don't know how to be the next version of myself, and I need some advice. And I felt also like I needed models you know, because being 30 didn't scare me. Because like I said, I had seen this mother who was radiant at 30. Um, but being 40 really scared me. Right. And Marsha said, have a child. She said, it's the most extraordinary form of love you'll ever know. She said, you're, you're going to freak out. You're about to have a birth. Your 40s are going to be the best decade of your life. And then you're going to have another massive freak out. And you can call me in 10 years. <laughs> 
Um, and I remember saying to her, well, I don't really think I want to have a child. Like, I'd like to have a healthy relationship with a man. <laughs> and Marsha said, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> as Marcia. a writer, she said, as a writer, relationships with men are tricky at best. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's not wrong. Um, <laughs> but... By the time I met Gordon, I was really thinking about yeah, she put, family in a different yeah. way. And I was and the question of having a child had been asked in a way that was opening me up and I didn't really understand where what I wanted. But um Gordon and I in one of our very first like the first time we kissed conversations, he said, um, I think I want a kid. And I said, yeah, I think I want a kid too. <laughs> and then it was just always there between us. Like we, we knew we were going to have a child together and because we were both 39 and because we were both artists, uh, we knew we'd only have one. Um, and I didn't have health insurance, so we couldn't like throw caution to the wind and wildly start having a baby like we had to get a couple pieces in play first so one was that I'd given up my apartment and was ready to move to LA um two I didn't have health insurance so we had to get me some health insurance thank you freelancers union um and then three I think we had to get our geography straight because we were going back and forth a lot that year and I had a really really good work year in 2009 so suddenly I was traveling all the time. And then, you know, by the time we were like, okay, let's start working on having a baby. Right. You know, there's only actually like three days a month you can get pregnant. I just was always traveling during those three days. Yes. <laughs> so then I, I had to, like, I was the, the um, problem. And you're like, I'm finally making money, but <laughs> I <I'm> know. <laughs> and then um, we got pregnant very easily. And then we got married. We had been engaged. We just like... You know, when you work in the theater, it's really hard to plan a wedding. Like I worked in a theater. In oh my god! Yeah. And also, like we tra- we as theater makers traffic in production. Like I felt like I don't know how to have a production without a director. <laughs> <laughs> like I wanted to call Trip Coleman and be like, "Okay, can you direct do this? <laughs> what do we do? Tell me where to be. Tell me when Tech Week is. Uh, what, what should they That's wear? People get wedding planners." <laughs> So we sort of threw that together pretty quickly. It was nice. And then the baby came. I had gotten a screenwriting job a month before I gave birth. I was also, I had this great mentor. I was working, Erin Cressida Wilson hired me to teach at UC Santa Barbara. Um, And she was actually the first non-family member that I told that I was pregnant because I had to go get an ultrasound on a day I was supposed to be in Santa Barbara and Erin was amazing amazing because she uh is a screenwriter she's a playwright and screenwriter she came she has a very similar background to me actually she came from theater she was an actress and then she was an actress who wrote plays and then she started as a film as a screenwriter and filmmaker um and she's an extraordinary person and she said you're gonna work up until you can no longer work and I'm going to tell you how and I'm going to help you. And she inspired me by telling me that she had actually been pitching a film job to Sony while her water broke (laughs) and she got the job. So like I took a little of that, you know, and I went and got a job. Um, and I turned in the outline before I gave birth and then I took 
eight weeks off, I hired this amazing young woman to come babysit for me 20 hours a week. And I wrote this movie and then I rewrote that movie. And then I got hired to rewrite a movie I had written the year before they put a director on it. And I took director notes. Um, but then what happened is, at about 11 months postpartum, all my jobs dried up. I had turned in all the steps for the one film. The other right. film, we had sort of exhausted my contract. And um, and the third film, they decided not to make. And so that was done. And then um, everybody said, we need new work. My playwriting agent said, we need new work. My TV agent said, well, I can't get you a job without new work. Um, and my film agent said, we need new work. And I didn't have new work in me. I mean, it was so exhausting. You're like, I just made a person. Yeah, pretty much. I just made a person, and my husband and I had very little help. We had that babysitter 20 hours a week. Mm -hmm. But, you know, neither one of us had a great, abundant, you know, resource directory. Like, it was just us raising our kid. It took me a lot to shift myself from super type a I've always been like really like um something needs to happen I'll go make it happen I'll go out in the world and do that come on I'll go do this table read like I'll go get this group together and suddenly as a as a new mother all that energy needed to go inside it was the first time in my life actually that I could just that I understood the beauty of the retreat the beauty of really going inside and conserving energy and not expending energy. And I didn't, I couldn't be like out in the world running around one because I was nursing every two hours for like a year Two because I had this little person connected to me and that was important and meaningful. And I had spent also psychologically so much time like individuating from my mom and finding my voice as a writer and separating from that toxic boyfriend and whatever those steps were that suddenly I had a husband and a child and I was no longer like a solo unit right suddenly I'm in this family and I had to relearn who I was and how I functioned and even how I wrote because I used to wake up as a single person, <laughs> even as a even as a um, coupled person, my husband sleeps later than I do. I, I would wake up, I would make my coffee, I would go to my yoga work, you know, my Mysore Shtanga yoga, and then I would write for three four hours, and then I would deal with the rest of the world. But suddenly, as a new mom, my baby was waking me up at four in the morning, and six in the morning, and seven in the morning, and eight in the morning, and like my babysitter didn't come until nine or ten. <laughs> Like I couldn't. There wasn't even the option to make your own structure. No. I used to be one of those annoying writers that would say things like it was important to write in the morning because my it was when you're closest to the dream state. (laughs) That part of my life is gone forever. (laughs) I have not had one of those mornings in a really long time. Um, you know, except when I travel. So so I had to relearn my process. I had to relearn my identity. I had to relearn my content. I had written about girls with sick mothers yearning for home for 10, 15 years. And suddenly I didn't have a sick mother. I was a healthy mother. I was being a mother to someone else. I had a home. I had a stable partner. I married to a great person. Um, so now what would I talk about? <laughs> so I had to relearn all of that. And it took, I mean, there was a year of like 
there was a year where things were really close to the bone for me and I was really sad and I cried a lot and I felt like I had lost myself and I was worried I'd never work again and um, my theater agent dropped me which was devastating and then I couldn't get another one which was equally devastating and then I just thought like it's all over I'm gonna be a housewife which then made me want to slit my wrists (laughs) not that there's anything wrong with that but it wasn't working for me and I was in LA and so there are a lot of people in LA that move there to be rich and famous and when their dreams don't work out there's like a whole they become I'm gonna list all the things they become and if you have podcast (laughs) listeners who are any of these things they'll hate me because I once said in therapy you know then they all become therapists and my therapist kind of (laughs) shot me a look (laughs) but it's true they become therapists and life coaches and yoga teachers and doulas and interior decorators they start businesses like there's nothing wrong with that but it's I think motherhood forces you to reinvent yourself. And I didn't want to not be a writer. I just didn't. And I had published this book that, um, you know, did okay, but like not okay enough to get a second book. And I don't think that who I am, I wrote some essays. I wrote like two books of essays, but I don't think I'm essentially a prose writer. I think I'm essentially a theater film, right? Like it's that thing about seeing the word on the body that excites me. So um, then I decided to write all of the ideas that I had pitched to my agents and they had rejected. And all of those projects had legs. All of them had legs. They all became things that made me very, very happy. And then I made my film and then I decided I was done and I wanted to live in New York City. (laughs) And so I ripped my family up (laughs) and I forced them all back east and we bought an apartment, and we are happy Queens dwellers. Yay. Yeah. And we're sort of figuring it out. Yeah. But parenthood is huge, and my husband and I both feel, you know, because we only have the one, and because we had him late in the game, we feel really committed to making sure that our son is the priority. And so we've made a lot of choices I mean, I think one of the reasons I wasn't in a writer's room when he was a baby in LA is like, I just needed to spend that time with him. I knew I'd never get it back and I knew there wasn't another one coming. So like I put my son to bed every night and that was huge. And, um, being able to create some stability for him and making sure he's in the right school. And I mean, it sounds super cheesy, but I love going to all those school events. He's in a school now where the parents are invited in all the time and like, I happily go and like, (laughs) he's going to have a drum performance tomorrow. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm just so exciting. His class shared at open work on Friday at town meeting. (laughs) So like I stayed for town meeting. Um, my husband's going to go into the art class this week and help the kids make paper mache. So we're really involved in his life. And then I don't know. (laughs) guys just take turns giving each other the space to write and (sighs) well we do that that. yeah Yeah. um when we were in LA I a playwright friend of mine turned me on to this website called co-parenting and I looked at the co-parenting website and it had sort of all of the day-to-day duties of parenting and this couple just broke everything down the middle so it was equitable right and we did that inherently I mean but because neither one of us has a corporate job we're both out there hustling for the money um 
Both of us do childcare. When there were diapers involved, both of us did diapers. My husband likes to say that he cooks more than I do, um, but I think the split's like 60 40. Mm. I don't think it's like he's going to say it's 70 30, but I don't think it is. <laughs> um, but we both cook. Um, I generally do the groceries, but we do it from Fresh Direct, so they come to us. Mm. Um, we, we share school drop off and pick up. Yeah, that's something that like, I feel like Frankie and I are very good at that stuff, but you you hear there's a lot of I'm glad it's being articulated there's a lot of discussion right now about like emotional labor Mm -hmm. that's huge the majority of it usually in a lot of heterosexual couples ends up falling on the women yeah I was shocked after I had my son to notice how pervasive heteronormative roles were in marriage how more times than not the man would be the provider and the woman would be the one that stayed home with the kid and in all of the cases I noticed they were doing this happily and willingly but um I felt like a real outlier because Gordon and I did it differently right Although the mommies in the mommy group loved coming to my house because Gordon was there and they all thought it was so cool that like Gordon was so involved and sometimes Gordon would be cooking us dinner while the babies were tearing up the house and everyone just thought that was so cool. (laughs) But I think it takes a real willingness to engage. It's also, I think it's very hard in a child's first life to not keep score. And I think it's essential to not keep score. Yeah. Like, I'm the one who did this, this, and that. What are you doing? It doesn't help anybody. But we learned that the hard way because there were were a lot of days of like, come on, I did this and this and this and that. Because you're sleep deprived and there's just no time to do anything. And you're both sleep deprived. And women and men just deal with that differently, I think. Yeah. Are there any lessons that you've learned in the last couple years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Probably. They can be tiny <laughs> I've things. I've been learning a yeah. lot of lessons in the last few years. You know, the biggest one is um, a craft lesson because when I started, because in the process of putting my film together and pitching my film and building a package for my film, the question has come up quite frequently um, about my visual aesthetic. Mm. And I went from saying, well, I don't really have one. <laughs> You know, I'm really story-based. I'm a writer. I come at it from story to um, learning that, in fact, I do have a visual aesthetic. And I've spent the last couple months learning how to talk about that aesthetic through watching other people's films and drawing them. Um, Yeah, it has been really cool. So I've been working on connecting my visual to my language, which is really new. Because, again, in the theater, I would just turn that over to the director. Yeah, it's so important for film. So sure. important for film. And it was there all along. It was just nascent and I didn't Articul- articulate yeah. it because, you know, I would think, well, as a writer, I mean, part of, I love being collaborative in the theater. And, and so I've always felt like, well, I'm going to be in the room. So I'm going to be really clear about what my domain is in the room. So I don't step on the director's toes. Mm -hmm. So I've never even crafted language around my visual aesthetic because I feel like that's the director's realm and I'm going to talk about story. That's my, that's what I get to talk about story and language. Um, so I've been on this little tear. I've been learning about cinematography and I've been figuring out which cinematographers I like and what kind of eye I like and what my film looks like. And so that's the little adult education piece of 2017 and 2018. <laughs> what else have I learned? 
learned a lot, honestly. I've been teaching a lot in the last few years, and so teaching always helps me learn, too. Right. Um, also having to articulate the things you might not usually put into words mm-hmm. about your process, I assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've been learning a lot about TV because, like I said, I want to get into a room, so um, I'm learning sort of what is happening in television and how to talk about television structure, especially as that structure is evolving. I'm learning a lot about my son. I learn new things about my son every day. I've learned so much about education <laughs> in the last few years. So yeah, I'm learning a lot. Such an exciting, exciting thing to be able to say that you're learning a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Some people get stuck and they just don't think about it. Well, so I mean, I think exciting. it goes back to your first question about the dark side. So what are the things that combat getting stuck? Well, that's staying the next curious. Question. Yeah. Yeah. So making things, mm-hmm. staying curious. Um, seeing what I can learn in any given situation. A friend of mine gave me this book last summer that also kind of blew my world open called Mindset. Do you know about this book? Uh One of my dearest friends had read it and it really impacted him and he suggested I read it. I read it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the psychologist who wrote it talks about these two ways of seeing the world in a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset is like, I win, I lose. I got that. I didn't get that. I'm awesome. I suck. That relationship is everything. He dumped me. He sucks. Like it's very, um, just makes me think of uh, our government at the moment. Yeah, it's very our <laughs> government exactly. at the moment. It's also, to be fair, very, when I was at Juilliard, that was also a quite prevalent way of seeing the world at Juilliard. Mm. I think Jim Houghton changed that culture very much. Um, Then you have a growth mindset. A growth mindset is like, okay, what can I learn from this? All right, so how did I do? What do I need to change? What do I need to look at differently? What can I take away? What was that process? It's being curious about how each um, experience is changing us and what we know and what we don't know and sort of staying in staying present with all of it and also thinking about, I'm always, I'm really trying to teach this to my son. If he learns anything, this is like the thing I want him to learn that, um, that being in the process is the most important part and that practice makes perfect. So, cause I see it in my son, like if he gets something quickly and he's good at it, he loves it. Right. If he doesn't get it quickly and he's bad at it, he shuns it. He doesn't want to do it. Yes. So we're trying like, what is that thing that makes you go back even though you're scared and you're not working at optimum capacity and you really think you can do better, but you're not doing better now. What's that thing that makes you go back? Yeah, that'll be Huge. I feel like that's how I was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, me too. Um, well, you just answered the next question without me which even is... asking it, <laughs> which was like, what are the things that you reach for when you are in that dark place? Like, or like books that you read or things like that. So, Process, yeah. comfort. Um, you know, I think the word self care has become a little bit of a like buzzword or something. Buzz, yeah. yeah, like a disgusting buzzword. <laughs> but I try to take care of myself. Yeah. I like to get in the bathtub with some Epsom salts and essential oils. Um, I like to go to museums. I like to spend a day at a museum getting fed. I like to go back and watch a movie. Um, I sort of, I try to slow down because I think so often for me, like the muscling through makes the darkness come up harder. So I try and um, accept what's happening and open up around it. And then see what there is to be curious and what I can write 
and who I can connect with and how I can feed myself. And then the last question is, have you seen anything recently of any art form that you want to recommend? Oh, that's such a good one. I wish I had thought about that earlier. Um, I saw something amazing at the new Victory last night. I see a lot of kids theater. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a show at the new Victory right now that I think is Commedia. I might be using that Mm -hmm. word wrong. It's uh, the company is uh, he's Italian and she's Swiss, but I think it's an Italian company. It's just the two of them. It's called (laughs) and it's, um, physical comedy fun and acrobatic. I was kind of blown away. I thought they were amazing. Um, I saw that last night. There is some, I've just been watching dear white people, which I think is amazing. I'm loving that. Um, I haven't been to the movies in a depressingly long time, but I'm excited about the Agnes Varda retrospective at the Museum of the Moving Image. Ooh. French New Wave filmmaker, woman, had kids. Okay. I mean, is like in her 80s or 90s now, still making work. Um, oh, yeah, I just read this Edwige Danticot book from the 90s called Breath. I think it's Breath, Eyes, Memory. I've been interested in her for a really long time, but I just never read this book when it came out. So I read it last week. Yay, Brooke, thank you so much. This was great. Yeah, you're welcome so much. This was a pleasure. Now I'm going to see you all summer. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.